Well, again, if you would, uh, take out your Bibles and let's turn to Genesis chapter 25. And we will be looking at the first 18 verses. So Genesis chapter 25, verses 1 through 18. And again, this is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. She bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. The son, sons of Dedan were Ashram, Letshuam, and Lahumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanok, and Abida, and Elda. All these were the children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac, but to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac, eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in Beer Lahavoy. These are the generations of Ishmael. Abraham's son, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Uh, Nebioth, the firstborn of Ishmael, Kedar, Adbil, Mibsham, Mishma, Duma, and Masa, Hada, Tema, Jeter, Naphish, and Kanema. These are the sons of Ishmael. And these are their names, by their villages, and by their encampments, twelve princes according to their tribes. These are the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. He breathed his last and died, and was gathered to his people. They settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt, in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all his kinsmen. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and this reading of your word. We ask, O God, that you would bless it to our hearts. Help us as we study this. Um, Sometimes these genealogies and all these various names can be confusing, perhaps even feeling like it's not very helpful. We ask that we may benefit greatly today from your word. Be with this your servant as the word is preached. Help me to explain it, apply it, that you may be given all glory. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we had read um, in Romans chapter 8 for our New Testament reading, and uh, We consider what it means to be a son of God. What does it mean to be a son of God? Well, Romans 8, as we had read, uh, states that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Our being made sons 
is of supernatural origin. It is from God's eternal decree. Before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 reminds us, we were chosen in Christ. Now there are some in our day, really it's probably always been true throughout history, there are some who think, well, you know, this is not fair. It's not fair. Why, why should God choose some and not choose others? It doesn't seem right. Seems a bit judgmental of God's purposes. But this is something that people will say. They don't think it's right that God would be pleased to make sons and heirs out of some and then others to be cast out. This this attitude, of course, does not take into account what sin truly deserves. The wages of sin is death. The sovereign choice of God, His effectually calling those whom He has chosen, is a story which plays out throughout Scripture. In fact, we learn in Genesis 25 that Isaac and Ishmael were not the only natural sons of Abraham, which is to say, those who were sons by birth. And as the writer of Genesis is now finishing up the account of Abraham, you know, he is sort of tying up all the loose ends, as it were, we are introduced to these other natural sons. These sons who were Abraham's by birth, but who were not sons of promise. They were not part of God's people. They were not partakers of God's covenant promises. They were sent out of the camp, as it were. These other sons of Abraham were sons that he had with a woman named Keturah. And so these genealogies show that there were these other sons. These were others who were Abraham's by blood, but they were not Abraham's sons by divine election. There may be some who have a blood bond with the elect, but this does not de facto make them inheritors of the divine promise. This will be reiterated again when we look at Esau and Jacob and God's divine choice there. These other sons of Abraham, these half-brothers of Isaac, do not inherit the promises of God. So our relationship with God is not based on our blood. It's not based on familiar background. It's not because you were born into the right family. You automatically get in. It is based on the Spirit of God and the calling of God and His eternal decree. The Westminster Larger Catechism, in defining effectual calling, says it is the work of God's almighty power and grace where the elect are called in His appointed time and invited and drawn to Jesus Christ by His Word and Spirit. This calling is based on God's own free and special love and is nothing in men. It is not our obedience then which, in which our call is based on. It's not our goodness. It's not any righteousness in and of ourselves. It's not because we're born into a good family, but because of God who transforms sinners out of His own mere good pleasure and for His own glory. 
This effectual call is of God's free and special grace. It's not anything foreseen or anything in man. It is the Spirit of God who regenerates man, thus enabling him to answer the call of the gospel. And so just as someone, just because someone is born into a good Christian family and perhaps even enjoys the benefits of covenant membership does not necessarily mean that they are definitely among God's elect and thus will be effectually called to faith. Now certainly God uses means. Certainly God uses godly families. But covenant status and kingdom citizenship are not synonymous categories. They don't mean exactly the same thing. There's certainly much overlap, but they're not a one-to-one. And we know this. We know this really from experience, don't we? Sadly, have we not all seen many who grew up in the church, who grew up around the gospel, maybe even it said they believed and yet renounced the faith and walk away. Not all who are born into the household of godly parents are necessarily among the elect. This is evidently the case with the sons of Abraham by Torah, who were born from the godly patriarch, Abraham, but were not truly children of Abraham by promise. Again, this concept becomes even more evident in the rest of chapter 25 as we, when we study the, the account of Jacob and Esau. Esau was a covenant member. He was born into the covenant household and yet was not found among God's elect. And so as we turn our attention now to chapter 25 and continuing our study in Genesis, um, we have, it's just sort of a, as a way of background, we've read already about the death of Sarah. we read of the union of Isaac and Rebekah. And now the author, which is Moses, is again, he's tying up some loose ends. He's bringing an end to the narrative of the patriarch. And so we read in verse 1 these words, Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. Now, this may, this may become difficult for you, so I'm just going to ask you to try to track along here. But a better translation may be this, and Abraham had taken another wife. That's actually a more accurate translation of this. Now, this may seem like a small thing, but the difference reflects the ambiguity which exists in the text itself. It should also be borne in mind that the events recorded here are not necessarily recorded in chronological order. Again, Moses is sort of tying up all the loose ends. Now, understandably, some of us may feel comforted if we understand the verse to mean that after Sarah had died, you know, Sarah dies and Abraham decides, hey, I'll to take another wife. Uh, And so we might think, oh, he was fruitful in his old age. We might feel better about it this way, and I understand this. This And this is certainly a possible understanding, but that does present some potential problems. It's also possible that Abraham took this concubine wife in addition to Sarah, even while she was still alive, perhaps even before Hagar. If this is in fact the case... Although we may be greatly disturbed by Abraham's polygamy, this does solve a problem of having sons who may have a claim on inheritance. If Keturah was a concubine wife and not a full-fledged wife, then her sons would have no right to inherit anything from Abraham. However, if she was 
simply a second wife who comes along after Sarah's death. And frankly, it would be immoral for Abraham to not leave a portion of his inheritance to them as well as to Isaac. Isaac was the firstborn, and he would only be entitled to a double portion, not to all of it. In fact, these other families and peoples would have a claim to the promised land. It seems most likely that these sons do not inherit from Abraham for the same reason that Ishmael does not. They are not legitimate heirs of the covenant promises. You see, you and I need to come to grips with the reality that the patriarchs practice polygamy in some fashion. We don't like it. We don't have to like it. The Bible does not in any way commend the practice of polygamy. It just simply states this, this is what they did. It doesn't mean it was right or good. In fact, the scriptures speak against the practice as a great evil. And yet, this is what Abraham did. It was wrong. It was sinful for Abraham to practice polygamy. Nevertheless, he most certainly did, at least in the case of Hagar. We already know about Hagar. But most likely, it seems, maybe even in the case here of Keturah. This makes the most sense of the text, even, in, even as we find it distasteful. And so, this wife, like Hagar, was not a full wife. It was a concubine wife, if we can put it that way. And as such, her children were illegitimate as it pertains to inheritance. They're not part of the promised seed. But since we do not know the chronology of when Abraham took this concubine wife, it may have been after Sarah, it's at least possible by the text, it may have been before or during the time of Sarah, it may have even been before they had entered the promised land. We don't know when she came about. We also don't know when these children were fathered. Moses is simply here informing us as readers of these other people, these other generations who had come about. So the timing is uncertain. But what is being highlighted again is the divine blessings of many progeny. Abraham had many people and many nations which had come through him. And so many of these names which are listed here, they can be traced out to people in the ancient world. But the promise, the promise was through Sarah and through their son Isaac. Now the purpose of recording this genealogy was to show that, yes, there were other sons by birth. But they were not inheritors. They were also no threat to Isaac. They were not among God's chosen people. And so although Keturah is prominent in the passage, really Sarah is still in the background here. Because Keturah, she's the other wife. She's the other one that comes along. By the way, Keturah's name means smoke or incense. This is sort of interesting because many of the nations who come from her will be involved in the incense trade. They go to the east. This is what they do. What is being recorded here is uh, in the larger passage is, again, the end of Abraham's life. And so 
the issues of inheritance necessarily need to be worked out. They need to be addressed. They need to be seen why it is that these other nations aren't part of God's people and why Isaac is the promised one. Isaac, though, is the sole inheritor. Verse 6 tells us that these other sons that were listed in verses 2-4, through they were sent away. They were sent away from Isaac. They were, they were sent to the east with gifts. Now, uh, Zimran is the name of a place in, west of Mecca. Uh, Jokshan is a place attested to in Arabia. Uh, Medan and Midian were d- desert dwellers. They are, they're often, by the way, grouped with the Ishmaelites. Uh, these were merchants who shipped spices, balm, and myrrh from Gilead to Egypt. It's quite possible that these also, by the way, were the traders who purchased Joseph from his brothers and sold him into slavery in Egypt in chapter 37. Now, the Midianites, of course, are best known of all of these sons. Uh, they were known to have settled in northwest Arabia in an area which stretches from the Gulf of Aqaba uh, along the shore. Uh, in the scriptures, uh, Ishmaelites and Midianites are used interchangeably, so it's very possible that these groups had assimilated together and become one people. Uh, Ishbak uh, settled in northern Syria. Shua is associated with the region of the Euphrates. Uh, this is actually the home of Bildad, one of Job's friends. So you can find what you see is all these connections to the ancient peoples of that day. Some of these, some of these have sons which are listed, sons of their own. So we have this genealogy. And then it ends with this. All these were the children of Keturah. And so Abraham, here's really the point. Abraham had other sons who become nations and who can be found in other works in the ancient world. They're They're known. These are known people. But the key is actually found in verse 5. Though there were all of these other nations who came about, verse 5 says, Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. All he had to Isaac. Abraham may have had all these other sons who become nations, but these other descendants were dispossessed. Those who had come from Keturah were dispossessed just as Ishmael had been. Everything is given to Isaac. These others were not legal sons, and so they were sent away by Abraham prior to his death. And thus they are not owed anything. They are not legal inheritors. It is Isaac who is the son of promise. It is Isaac who had come by supernatural means because his mother had been barren. God's promise was at work through him. These others are not unimportant. They're important people. In fact, one would think that the biblical record would want to ignore these other sons. I mean, if you think about it, these other sons are kind of embarrassing. Like, oh yeah, there's these these other ones that aren't part of this. But these other peoples uh, can be found. Uh, these other people may also be considered to be rivals. Some might want to question Isaac's legitimacy as the heir. Well, well what about these others? Well, you know, the scriptures record all, all that, that take place in this regard. Even the warts. Right? Even, the, even the things that are embarrassing for people. They're recorded. 
all the actions and movements of God's people are given. In this way, we can trust the historic accuracy of the Bible. The people and places and events recorded can be attested to in other ancient writings and archaeological finds. And the genealogy of these other sons speaks of nations which come on the scene and show us the, the humanity and fallen nature even of our biblical heroes. Abraham, he wasn't perfect. He made mistakes. He did things he shouldn't have done. Notice, too, that although Abraham does send away these other sons, he does not send them away empty-handed. Now, he could have, but he doesn't. Remember, the sons of a full or true wife could could expect a definite share of the inheritance. But the sons of the concubine, they, they were dependent on the goodness of their father. The fact that Abraham sends them off with something, a gift, is significant. These sons are sent away with gifts from the generous hand of their father. And in this way, Abraham reflects the generosity of our Heavenly Father, who gives all good gifts by common grace, even to those who are outside the kingdom. Remember, the rain falls, the sun shines on both the elect and the non-elect. And so these sons of Abraham, they're given gifts, they're sent away to the east, which then guarantees Isaac's future position. Isaac is the promised son. He is the only heir. And he and Ishmael are the only true sons. And Ishmael is only considered a son because of his, mother, of his mother's connection to Sarah. But even then, Ishmael does not have any claim on the inheritance. All that belonged to Abraham, his wealth, the promises, all of this is given to the promised son, Isaac. And so Isaac's position is secure as the others are sent to the east. Now, beginning in verse 7, we read what we've, I've called the obituary of Abraham. Now, we see that he lived for 175 years. He died an old man and full of years. And he was buried in the cave which he had purchased for Sarah's burial. Abraham had lived a long and full life. Uh, at this point, he would have resided in Canaan for a hundred years. And his son Isaac was now 75 years old. And his grandsons were 15. So the, the, the longevity of his life speaks to God's blessing on him. In verse 8, it's recorded this. Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, and then this, and was gathered to his people. Now what does that last phrase mean, was gathered to his people? Maybe you've read that and wondered. Well, what does that exactly mean? Well, you should understand, this is a Hebrew idiom. It does, what it does not mean is that he was buried with his ancestors. We actually already know that because we, we, we know he was buried in the cave that he had purchased for Sarah. At this point, Sarah would be the only one in that cave. So it's not that he was buried with his ancestors. It's also not some kind of ancestor worship or being gathered with all people who had come before him. What this idiom means is that in his death, though he was physically mortal, he experienced the immortality of the soul. Death is a transition from this mortal life 
to an afterlife of immortality where one is united with those who are your people. This is, this is in some sense true of all humanity, but it's not being gathered with all humanity. All of us in, in, will one day, in this sense, be gathered to our people. The elect are gathered with the elect, who are with the Lord. And the reprobate are gathered with the reprobate, experiencing the pains of hell forever under the wrath and curse of God. David speaks of this in Psalm 49, 14. Like sheep they're appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. So at death, Abraham is gathered to be with the Lord and with all of God's people, those who God had called out of darkness into his kingdom. Is this the hope of Christians? Is not the believer who dies gathered to be with the Savior along with all other followers of Christ in the heavenly places? Do we not, as the sons of God and heirs of the promise, inherit the imperishable riches of heaven? Our hope Our eternal life is wrapped up then in the promises of God, His covenant, His love, His grace and mercy toward us. And so Abraham was gathered to his people. He was gathered to be with the Lord and with all of the Lord's people. As his his soul is now with the Lord, his body was buried by his sons, Isaac and Ishmael in the cave with his wife Sarah. And so like Jacob and Esau later, Isaac and Ishmael are reunited. They're reunited again at the burial of their father. God blessed Isaac, the son of Abraham. Thus this ends the account of Abraham's story. And the focus now will turn to the son who will settle where Hagar had promised that she would have a son, a further allusion to Isaac's displacement of Ishmael. Again, the narrative of Genesis is picking up the loose ends of the story and turns attention for a moment to Ishmael before you know, the, the rest of the narrative is going to focus on Isaac. So what is given here is a record of the descendants of Ishmael, the the names and families. Again, these are attested to in other parts of Scripture and in other ancient writings. And like Israel, they are broken down into 12 tribes. Fulfilling the promise of Genesis 17.20, Ishmael is said to have lived 137 years. He survived Abraham by 48 years. And then we read this, he breathed his last and died and then that same phrase again, and was gathered to his people. Interesting. We see this repetition of the earlier formula, and was gathered to his people. Now this suggests something of Ishmael's importance. He too was gathered to his people. Like Abraham, Ishmael entered into eternity. He entered into you know, the, the rest of eternity. The question, though, for us is, what people was he gathered to? That's the question. Was he gathered to be with the elect, or was he gathered to be with the reprobate, those who are experiencing the pains of hell? 
Another way to ask the same question is this. Was Ishmael a believer? Was Ishmael personally among the elect? I don't know. I can say this. Ishmael, whether Ishmael was a follower of Yahweh, can't be ruled out by the text. Though the same thing cannot be said of his descendants. We know though his children who come after him most certainly were not followers of the Lord. Uh, but of Ishmael himself, we cannot rule it out completely. Ishmael may well have been gathered with Abraham and all of the elect of God. We cannot be certain. But we, are, we do know that his descendants, when they're gathered to be with their people, they are not being gathered to God and to the people of God because they were in active rebellion against the Lord. And we read here, too, that Ishmael's descendants settled from Havaliah to Shur, probably indicated in an area around the Suez to Sinai. Uh, later, they will be displaced by the Amalekites, and they will then resettle in Arabia. As it, it says that they live against all uh, their kinsmen. Which is to say this, the people of Ishmael lived in hostility. They fought with everybody, and particularly against Israel. Now, though Ishmael and Isaac are together at the burial of their father... Uh, what we'll see throughout history is that their people will grow in hostility toward one another. So these brothers from Abraham are not blessed in the same way. Their, their descendants go take diverging paths. One line is the line of promise. This is Isaac. And the other is the line of the non-elect. Although Ishmael's line was not to have the blessings of God's elect, God did keep his promise. Hagar. The people of Isaac were, who are God's people, were called effectually by God, having been predestined to be adopted by God. The effectual call of God is His free and special grace alone. It's, it's not anything in us. It's not something foreseen. God didn't you know, look down the corridors of time and see, oh, they're, they're, they're going to be good and choose me, so I'll choose them. This is not how this works. It's not because you were born into the right family. You know, some people you know, think, oh, well, I grew up in a Christian home, so I guess that makes me a Christian. I don't have to go to church or believe anything. It's not what makes one a Christian. God does use families in His providence. It's not because we did something or because God saw something that we would do. A man is passive until the quickening and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Entry into God's kingdom is by faith, and faith is a free gift from God. And the giving of that gift is by God's divine election and decree. Abraham had other sons, beside Isaac. But they could not claim their bloodline as a means to an inheritance, and neither can a Christian. There are far too many who grow up in Christian homes and assume that because their parents were Christians, that they too will inherit the kingdom. They assume that they can arrive at the gates on the coattails of those who had come before them. This was certainly true of many of the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day. They thought, well, we're sons of Abraham. We get in, right? We get a free pass. The redeemed of Christ are those who have the Holy Spirit. 
who trusts and rests on Christ alone and His promises. And the evidence of this faith is seen in our fruitfulness and obedience. Our faith in Christ saves us, and that reality works itself out in bearing fruit. This is a point that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 7, where He indicates the need for believers to be fruitful. Fruitfulness is an indicator of one's belief and being led by the Spirit of God. He says in in verse 19, Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire. Thus you recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says that fruitfulness is important. That fruitfulness is borne out by one who has the Spirit of God. This is also why Peter says in 2 Peter 1, to give diligence to make your calling and election sure. God has called us to be fruitful, to vindicate the reality of our sonship and our being heirs of the promise. God has before all time and eternity past elected some to everlasting life. He has predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will and to the praise of His glorious grace. Therefore, because God has called us as Christians out of darkness into His light, He has redeemed us by the blood of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. We are no longer to live according to the flesh, but by the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. We receive the Spirit from God, not the Spirit of slavery, the spirit of adoption as sons. And the scriptures say the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and if children heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ. So this inheritance of Isaac and then later of Jacob, these were not based on personal goodness. They were not based on personal faithfulness. They were not because they were such swell guys. In the case of Jacob, we'll learn he wasn't that swell of a guy. It's based on the divine call of God. What about all these other sons? What about these other people? What of the unbeliever in our own day? You and I cannot know the secret things of God. We can only proclaim the gospel. We can give the outward call of the gospel. But it is only the Spirit of God who could take the heart of stone and make them into hearts of flesh. It is only God who can transform rebels guilty of cosmic treason into sons and heirs. But those who are not trusting in Christ, bearing the fruit of righteousness, not only outwardly, but inwardly as well, repenting of sin, following after Christ, as said in the words of our Savior, are cast out and thus not part of the kingdom. That's frightening, isn't it? And so I'd urge you, Christian, trust in the Lord. Be fruitful in your walk. Serve one another with joy. 
But in the end, it's not your bearing fruit which saves you. But rather God's electing purposes and His grace and mercy to undeserving sinners. So Christian, you're urged to rest then in the grace of God and in your inheritance in Him, knowing that your relationship to you is not based in you. It's not because you perfectly kept the law. It's because you're... It's not because of your personal obedience. It's because of the obedience of Jesus Christ on your behalf. God's eternal decree, His loving kindness, His covenant faithfulness, which always stands. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank You for this reminder of you, Your saving us by Your grace, that You have given us the free gift of faith, and that Jesus really, truly saves us, and that your Spirit really, truly transforms us into new creatures, that the heart of stone has been removed, a new heart of flesh has been given. But oh, we still battle against sin. Help us to walk in righteousness by your Spirit, trusting in the finished work of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray and for his sake. Amen.